there's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance, right? And add on to that for me at the time was I'd say, and I walk it all the time, right? And I think that that is a very true statement. Right? You talk about, you know, having to have the confidence that you need to articulate challenging conversations, very technical ones in some capacities or very politically heightened in some capacity. But being able to have the tools and in a lot of cases, it's the vocabulary and the understanding to be able to recognize some of those trigger points. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Brad Sexton, CIO and Information Security Officer at Terribles. Issues with a dot matrix printer catapulted Brad from a career in education to IT. His journey has involved conflict, change, and self-reflection, all of which shaped him into the leader he is today. He joins us to share how he's learned to manage tough conversations and emotions in the workspace. There is a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And leaders should know how to walk that line effectively. So what four clues indicate an ego problem? How can you create a safe space for tough conversations? And what are the right and wrong motives for becoming a leader? Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. My name is Brad Sexton. I'm the Chief Information Officer and Information Security Officer for Terribles here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, how long have you been doing that? April 3rd was the big first day for me here. So it's relatively not a new CISO, but a new CIO and new CISO-ish in the role. That certainly wasn't your start, though. You told me early on, uh, and these are my words, not yours, so I'll apply the bad words to me, but you were an educator, but kind of the move into IT, you got pissed off at printing. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was working in kind of a boys and girls club, right? Helping, teaching kids and stuff. And one of the things that we had to do, this is in the early 90s, and we had one printer in the office that was attached to a very old computer, as you can imagine dot matrix printer and you literally had to take a floppy disk from any other computer in the office and bring it over to this one and print out whatever you need to print out and i was like there's no way we have to be able to do this all right we can print from this one why, why can't we print from other ones and so i reached out to our it team and said hey you know we need to be able to do this and they said absolutely it's easy to do i don't know if they said easy or, or maybe it was easy for them at the time and I said, but we don't have time to do it. So we'll give you all the tools. You can do it yourself if you're interested. I was like, okay. So I crawled around in false ceilings and built a bunch of 10 base two networking and screwed it up a bunch of times until I finally got it figured out and worked out. And I've been in IT ever since. So I guess I have to ask, why didn't IT tackle that? I mean, I'm glad you did it because that took your career ultimately in another direction. But was it that did they not want to pull cable? Did they not see it as a priority? Is like, what, what was the, I'm just curious. 
they, they didn't see it as a priority. And I, at this point, I don't remember what was priority in their organization, but I will tell you that from they supported the entire, it was military base and they supported the entire base. And at the time, the organization that I worked for was a support organization and not direct support to the military member themselves, but to their family members. And as unfortunate as it may sound, they didn't get a lot of attention. It wasn't a real priority for the organization at the time. Interesting. It did. Did any of your, because you, you, again, you were teaching, did any of your coworkers at the time, were they like, what the hell are you doing? Or did they even know you were sort of, you know, running copper wires in the ceiling? I think a few of them probably asked me, like, why are you in the ceiling? And then knowing that I'm a tinkerer anyway, that they were like, okay, have fun, get your job done. <laughs> it's funny how careers take us that way and how, how life does. So you did that. But that wasn't the end of it. You had you know, work groups and other things that were happening. What was the next step that happened in this sort of transition from educator to being kind of the you know, organizational lead for IT? What was the next sort of step for you? Yeah, my boss's boss, the lady who ran the center, automation was really just kind of starting in, the, in that space. And so we had a kind of a centralized program to help manage you know, people registering for different programs and taking payments and stuff like that. And so she's like, hey, can you help manage this application? Right. We don't, it's kind of had its challenges. It's new to us. Can you start working on that? There was a side piece to it as well. My boss was leaving for an extended kind of deployment and she wanted to bring in a friend of hers to run the program. And I was fairly young at the time and not nearly as politically polished. And so I kind of said, no, that's not going to happen. I, I've been there for three, four years. I could run it with my eyes closed. And so she said, hey, I'm going to move you over into IT. And, you know, we need that support. We need someone to do that. And so I, I recognized it at the time as an opportunity to go back and finish my degree and get into something that ultimately I really enjoyed. So that switch, but that still kind of came as a as a surprise. And did the degree align with IT or was it something just you were just want to finish that as a goal along the way? I don't recall. Well, I kind of had a couple of different majors through college, right? So I started out as a civil engineer. That's uh, what my dad wanted me to take over the family business when I realized I didn't want to do that. I changed to a recreation major, which kind of aligned with where I was at at the time, right? Working in a military program for for kids and when i kind of got moved into the it role and realized i really enjoyed it um, and i was a gamer before right so i was always playing video games and i built my own computer so i was always kind of tinkering with that kind of stuff so i knew it was an interest of mine and then when i had an opportunity to actually work in it full time it just absorbed me i was i really enjoyed it and so I ended up changing my major and going back to school and finishing my degree with information systems management. Cool. Yeah, that which is a title that is now gone, much like a concentration and some of the stuff I studied. We're old enough that that's been sort of remarketed as other things. So you left, this is Europe, in Europe, correct? You're overseas. You then go to Vegas? Yeah, well, I took one other step in Europe. I moved from kind of doing the, the 
youth program and running IT there to working on command and control networks, so logistics networks for the military as a network engineer. Thought I was going to get fired once for that one, but uh, ended up <laughs> ended up ultimately being offered a job here in Las Vegas. And after had spending a decade in, in Europe, it was the right timing for me to come back to the United States. And Vegas was the opportunity. And it, I came back to manage a contract to run IT for the Department of Energy. So we, for the listener, we had a chat a while back on this, and I actually had my notes out of order. Yeah, you were doing command and control support for eight-ish years, I think. Two years as a contractor is a note I had. But that that had to have been very structured work, like certainly seemingly less creative than go climb in the ceiling and run copper. I mean, anything there that was, you mentioned earlier, not being as polished, maybe from a career perspective, not from a talent or a skill perspective, but maybe from a, I, the way you said it, it was more of a bedside manner kind of thing, right? Was that it? And did that job require you to rein that in or change your I don't know, your appearance or attitude, or did it reinforce those bad habits working in that you know, European command post? It actually started the process for me of kind of the transformation of significantly more visibility. And I don't, maybe that's not the best term for it, but being able to see things from a bigger picture. So, you know, I kind of started there working on routers and switches and then very quickly moved into a role where I was designing a kind of a forklift upgrade for the entire theater from a router and switch perspective, right? It was, it was good timing. It was time for them to, you know, kind of replace aging hardware anyway. And so I kind of moved into a role where I had the opportunity to build what that was going to look like for the next five to seven years across that theater. So that started that kind of transformation of thinking at a bigger level on looking at things at a more enterprise perspective, and then coming to Las Vegas and managing a team of between 65 and 75 staff across all different kinds of discipline really kind of stretched that. And, you know, there are times during that period that I needed to be more polished and kind of thrust into a a significantly more political environment. And I don't know if I was ready for that at the time. And I think uh, what ultimately happened out of that for me was I ended up, you know, moving on from that role. You know, I look back at it now with hindsight and saying poor decisions, but, you know, the writing was on the wall for me. I just didn't recognize it. Are you comfortable? We've all had this, I think. And looking back on this, sort of the retrospective thought of, what we could have done differently in our career. But I think from a mentorship perspective, it's important to share some of these. I noticed you paused a little bit. Can you share what that, I mean, you had a long run there. Like you weren't there a month or or a year and then, you know, bounced out. You you were there for a a significant window of time. What was the issue? Sounds like it wasn't a technical issue. Sounds like you were still working on, you know, sort of personality attributes, I guess, maybe might be what to say. Can you share what went down or, or if you can't, at least share the lessons learned out of that that you would tell maybe someone in that position today? Yeah. So I was there for roughly five years. And I think that, you know, I've struggled with articulating this over the years. One, I guess put it as bluntly as possible, my ego got in the way of my ability to do the job. And, you know, coming to terms with 
decisions that you've made that has, you know, negatively impacted your career, your financial situation, your expectations of yourself was a tremendous blow. And it took me many, many years to come to terms with what I had done or not recognized and had not done because I could have well stayed there for a lot longer had I recognized some of the clues that were given to me. And I really credit my boss at the time. And I was a contractor. So my boss actually lived back east, you know, where you're from. He was in the DC area. And so he would come out every couple of months. And I used to say all the time, you know, it was great. I had a boss that was 3000 miles away, right? I can you know, kind of do whatever I needed to do and not worry about it. But it's almost like, you know, when you first get out of the house when you're a kid, right? Everybody's like, oh, the world's my oyster. I can do whatever I want. Well, there are consequences to doing whatever you want. And for me, it was an ego unchecked. And it took me many years. But when my boss came to tell me, hey, this isn't working, right? We're going to have to find something else for you. And they were very supportive. They knew that I had a lot of potential and provided some opportunities for me in, uh, in other areas. But he sat down with me and, and clearly said, hey, these are the things that you have done and communicated. And, and it was a very difficult conversation. And I was upset and frustrated and lashing out at him and, you know, didn't talk to him for a long time. And several years later, uh, and we kind of stayed in touch here and there, right? But I didn't really want to talk to him. And after, you know, reflecting and kind of really taking in some of the things that he had said to me over the course of two or three years, I reached out to him one time when he was in town and said, hey, let's, you know, sit down and catch up. And he's like, okay. And I, I sat down and told him, I said, you know, I really appreciate what you did for me. I wouldn't have made it past that part of my career. I would have always, I would have been blind to my own deficiencies had, I, had that incident not happened. And, and yes, it was painful and yes, it was challenging, but it put me at a crossroads and it forced me to either recognize or to bury and just blame it on other people and say, no, it wasn't me and, and go on. And it also, my wife helped me with that piece as well. She's a very insightful person. You know, you're going to get an opportunity to talk to her at, at some point here, I know. And you'll, you'll hear that, that she's an extremely insightful person and very easy to talk to. And so, you know, a combination of growing as an individual experience and having some people around me that were willing to push me, but not so much that recognize where, you know, kind of when to stop. Hey, I push you a little bit, let me go a little bit and then push a little bit more. And so, those challenges that you face in your career, and I, I really look at it as a blessing for me to be able to have those people around me and to help me grow through that time in my life. So I think this is more common than we maybe realize, and I think it affects all of us to some degree, but we all know someone that is maybe even perpetually frustrated with their work arrangement. Maybe they're an otherwise great employee, but there's friction and maybe an unnecessary amount. You gave me some clues, some phrases that I actually took note of where you're talking about not recognizing what you had done, that there were clues there, but maybe you didn't pick up on them. And you mentioned ego, which in some cases, a little bit of that is maybe, maybe needed in the technical realm where a lot of what you're doing may not be 
well-documented or you're dealing with multiple standards or protocols or vendors or high-pressure outages, right? It's not like a clock-in, clock-out kind of thing. It's an always-on kind of thing, especially when you're doing uh, the kind of work you were doing. So there's this balance there. Can you share maybe some additional reflection for the purpose of the listener, either that may be going through the same thing themselves, maybe how to identify those clues, or maybe the leader who has an associate, right? We're in a time machine right now. You and I are talking about something that happened a long time ago. In your case, what were those clues or what could be other types of clues that, hey, we've got someone here, we need to talk to them. We can't just, maybe we shouldn't force them out. We don't shove them completely, but we need to move them a little bit to get them on this road that you're talking about. What are some of those clues that maybe you should have seen or that leaders should think about today? I think there's a, a couple of them. And, and I want to say that as leaders, one of the things that is probably one of the most important things that we can do is creating a safe space for our staff to have communication with us and to be constructive in our conversations with them. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, everybody has strengths and weaknesses and working through helping to identify where someone's strength and where their weaknesses are and giving them tools. Uh, my wife will say this to me all the time, like you have a tool belt and more the more tools you can put in there, the more opportunities you have to try different things. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so for me, I think I've, I've recognized over time this phrase I'm going to tell you that I used for a long time and just how nuanced it can be. Right? And what I used to always say is there's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance. Right. And add on to that for me at the time was I'd say and I walk it all the time. Right. And I think that that is a very true statement. Right? You talk about, you know, having to have the confidence that you need to articulate challenging conversations, very technical ones in some capacities, or very politically heightened in some capacity. But being able to have the tools, and in a lot of cases, it's the vocabulary and the understanding to be able to recognize some of those uh, trigger points, right? When you have people around you, or you hear feedback from other people that say, yeah, they're really great, but, or they're an incredible engineer, but, right? I, I had someone tell me one time, hey, there's an individual on the team and there's three different people. It depends on whether or not you talk to them in person, you talk to them over the phone or you talk to them via email, right? You talk to them in person, they're absolutely great, very engaging, supportive. How can I help? You talk to them on the phone, a little shorter, but very much the same kind of experience you get an email from and you're like, I want to smack the person on the other side of this keyboard because they just don't recognize the context. And so having to, you know, hearing that from other people around them, one goes to the place of making sure that as a leader, you put people in an environment where they feel free to talk to you. And then a lot of times people will start with saying, you know, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Okay, you're not getting anybody in trouble. It's their actions that they're taking. But how can we help? How do we put people in a position to be successful, to take advantages of their strengths while you help work on their weaknesses. And, and you know, the, like I said, the biggest one for me is hearing people around them. I think the other piece as a leader is if people stop challenging you. If you're in conversations and, you know, every time you're speaking, no one else wants to present different opinions, different thoughts, wants to say anything, 
there's a dynamic there that's incorrect. Not always. In some cases, that, that's appropriate. But a very small percentage of the time is that the case. And I, I will tell my staff all the time, look, if, if you have a disagreement with me and it's in front of, a, say, a customer or something else, like, let's take it to the side, bring me in a room, and we'll hash out whatever we need to hash out. And then the other part of it is recognizing who has the authority to make whatever the decision it is. I don't have the ultimate authority. I disagree with my boss all the time. But it's not me making that decision. And so you have to also recognize you put your input in, you've given your professional opinion, and it's not and the person who has the authority to make that decision isn't making the decision that you want them to make. And, and that comes with every position. And so a lot of times as we talk to individuals younger in their career, especially ones that are very bright and very, very capable that have been... Uh, doing this in air quotes, right most of the time or all the time, they can find it difficult to recognize that whether they're right or wrong, it's not their decision to make. So you, you covered a lot there. And I actually, uh, I take notes when we speak because I, I often go back and have to, I'm not smart enough to remember these things in a buffer. So I've got to go back and cite them in order to do that effectively. I must take notes. So even if the listener hears the keyboard, that's why. I'm not uh, chatting with somebody, but you covered a lot of really important things there. So pursuant to the larger topic of, hey, I kind of got, I got in my own way earlier in my career, or I have people that are great, but there's an issue there somewhere that are maybe high friction for whatever reason, or don't have, you know, polish is often used as the descriptor. But I'm going to run through those and for the benefit of the listener, because I think it's powerful. The one I like, you mentioned the confidence versus arrogance, there being a fine line there. I think a lot of times it depends on the role. I will say in defense of that, that the things that got me in trouble earlier in my career became an asset later. So the things that were abrasive early on, some of those things ultimately made me, I think, a better leader, certainly as it related to incident response and breach response and having to make a big company try to move them more quickly, but it, it's not without danger. But the best thing I think you said is one of these, these clues is listen for the but as people are being described, whether it's you or your staff, uh, and how even the medium could change that. So the, the but may apply to certain types of interactions. Uh, the other clue that I took was somebody who may begin a statement with, I don't want to get him in trouble, however, right, or maybe another but scenario. And the other key, this is important in leadership meetings as well as uh, staff meetings, is if no one's challenging you or if people stop challenging certain individuals, I think that is a big warning for a lot of different reasons. The other one I'll give is I would have someone tell me a long time ago that if they didn't hear me speak up, if they didn't hear a response from me, and this is when I was an individual contributor, they got very nervous because they knew I was so pissed that at this out, they, they knew something was either I was mad, maybe not for the right reasons, but or there was something that's this is so terrible. They always expected me to say something when I didn't. That was their sort of indicator. So I think that's a huge tip that I think it's overlooked. The last is coaching people on authority right? That there's a responsibility there. And where do you give input, as you mentioned, versus who ultimately makes the call and, and why do they have that authority? So oftentimes, it's not always about being right. 
there's many things that go into making a decision. Sometimes it is political. Sometimes it is non-technical. So I think that that encompassed that block of reflection, I think, is excellent. So I appreciate you sharing for that, that all that information. If there's, is there anything that you would add to that based on, as I'm sort of reading it back to you, does, it, does anything else spark in the mind? No, I think you captured it pretty well. I just, you know, it's always interesting for me to think back on that time. And I think every time I reflect on it, there's probably some interaction that, you know, a new one that pops up in my head, like, damn, I wish I could have done that one better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Boy, don't we all. But if you didn't have that, if you didn't have that screw up, there wouldn't have been the opportunity to, to learn from it either. So I think honestly, I'd still be an individual contributor. Yeah. Well, and that's the point of reflection. I mean, I think that's the thing. I never planned on going into leadership, certainly not executive leadership, never had the desire. I had peers and friends that are like, I want to be a manager. I want to, I never had that. Never wanted to be, never gave a damn. I wanted to work on difficult problems. I wanted to be the one that would go into, if something was really messed up, I would often be the person that was sent in to, to deal with that for a variety of reasons. And, but I never really wanted to go, but I, you, we all kind of reach, at least it was for me. I had a, a kind of a coach that told me I, I should go into leadership. And then I had mainly because there was stuff he didn't want me to, didn't, he didn't want to mess with himself and he needed someone to slot in there. But I also think he was looking out for my uh, career as well. But, you know, I had been successful as kind of the hammer and then trying to mold the hammer into, you know, maybe a velvet hammer initially to sort of manage these. But the other thing is, the other w reason why I did it, and I'm curious to know if this led into some of your decision-making, is element of, of influence, I guess, is the word I'll use, or maybe it's authority that you mentioned earlier. You get to the point as an individual contributor where you, there's a, there's a cap, there's a cap to authority, and, and it may even be at zero. I felt like I could make a bigger impact if I moved into leadership and if I could navigate that, I could influence more was the other reason why I did it. Was there a similarity there or was it something completely different? No, I think it was, for me, was very close to the same two, two aspects. Clearly for me, one of them was a sphere of influence, right? And that was recognizing that I could make a difference at a larger level if I got into a leadership role. I think the other thing that happened for me is I ended up, I ended up in most scenarios from most of the organizations I was in before I really got into leadership, being the person that people came to anyway, to ask about things. They really, you know, like you said, when you didn't say something, when you didn't speak up in a meeting or you didn't have an opinion on something, there was a clue there, right? And so, you know, I would end up in meetings and then people turning to me and saying, okay, well, we want your opinion. I, we want we want your insight, and so it can be a dangerous piece. Start adding to ego as opposed to confidence, but it started changing the way I thought about how I could make a difference. I'll tell you, I say make a difference now. When I was younger, it was probably how I could control things, right? Probably the way I, I looked at it. Well, probably I know it was, but. That's kind of how that shaped for me and, and where it, it led to. And, and, I, and I tell people, you know, when they come to me and say, hey, I'm, you know, I want to get into leadership. I want to. Why? Why are you interested in doing it? 
and understand your own motives. Let's let's dig through a little bit and help you articulate why you're really interested in because it's a completely different skill set. You know, a lot of people look at it and say, "Oh, you sit in meetings and you know you're going to make a decision and right walk away from it." Uh, it is it is significantly different skill set than being able to sit at a keyboard and you know reroute traffic from you know one data center to another or you know find out what bad what a bad guy has done in your environment when they got in. Um, it's it's a lot more nuanced. No question. You the, the statement I've made and people who listen to the show will know probably what I'm about to say, but you have to be ready to give away almost all your skills that have. The stuff that got you to where you are to make the decision about going into leadership, you can pretty much delete all of that. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And you have to learn an entirely new skill set. You have to remember enough so you can throw the bullshit by. But that goes, yeah, your memories are still going to be there and some of your skills, but those will fade over time. And it's, I always found that staff appreciated that I had done their job. And many times it's not a prerequisite, but in many cases we have managers that have never done the work. And I was able to use that as, as an asset from a leadership perspective because they knew most importantly that I knew the stuff that would get thrown at them that would derail their success, knew their, their likes, dislikes, you know, their, their proclivities, right? So that helped a little bit. But another thing that listeners would know what I would, would remember is, but I still would take my, wouldn't allow myself to put my hands on keyboard after I moved into a leadership role, nor would any of my managers or directors. That was sort of the rule. Team leads still could, but uh, but above that, not. So we had an interesting chat when we met. You, you kind of moved in to, you were Department of Energy, you were in Nevada. You talked about when you wanted to get out of government and it's kind of a cultural element. There was about a three or four month stint that you had. What year was that? Because I think that was an interesting window of time that may even be tied into some of what we were chatting about before. What year was that? Was it, did I have, a, is it 05, correct? Correct. Yeah, 2005. And is, but you were there for a short amount of time. Yeah, long, long enough to realize two things. I was in the wrong place and they didn't want me there either. <laughs> well, uh, that's a hell of a thing. <laughs> it was very stressful for those three months to know that there was tension from the very beginning and n- to not understand why someone was putting me in a position that was a no-win situation on purpose. After articulating, please let's not be put in that position, uh, doing it specifically anyway. It just didn't compute for me. I didn't understand until afterwards when I you know, had a chance to talk to some other people and through the years found out that they didn't want anybody in that role. And if they had to have someone, it surely wasn't me. That wasn't the choice. It was the CIO at the time, and they really didn't want me in that role. But I was the most qualified to do the job. Well, so let's, the lesson I think I want to try to pull from this is how does it, I think we've had many people jump on the show, and these are immensely talented individuals that have wonderful CVs and interview well and still they end up in places that aren't great fits. And the theme, and I always try to pull this out, is around the interview itself. And I always ask, so whatever the situation is, so using this as the backdrop, 
you've been working on yourself. You continue to do so. We all do. But you got slotted into a position. They obviously hired you. But in a short window of time, it's like this isn't working. So how would that would you have changed your interviewing questions in that scenario? And what would you have done differently? Or do you how does it color the way you do things moving forward? Let me phrase it oh, that way. It completely changed the way I interview the questions I ask. It specifically, up until that point in time, I really felt like the company was driving the interview, right? They were interviewing me. And what I've realized is I had just as much power in that conversation and just as much strength uh, in that conversation as the company does. So I have changed how I ask questions in interviews because now I'm interviewing the organization as well. I know the job, right? I mean, you can read the job description. You can see it's, there's, you know, I've been in IT for a very long time. I understand the job piece of it. What really changes the dynamic of performing that job is the organization. One of the first questions for this job, one of the first questions I ask is, why is this position open? Was it someone in it before? Why are you hiring for it? Right? If you're hiring for the position because you have some regulatory requirement, you know, you had a breach, whatever the case may be, and now you're being required to put someone in a very specific role, hey, I get it. I understand that's, you know, you got to do what you want to do. I'm not interested in that kind of a position, right? Because to me, the organization may not be in the right place to recognize the value that that position can provide to an organization. And specifically in this case, I'm talking about, you know, at the, at the executive leadership level from an IT perspective. And so I start asking questions more about how do you perceive IT? How is the organization structured? What are the main pain points? What's the goals? Why have you built this position? Why did you feel the need to fill this role now? Was it because you had someone before and, and things were going well and you had to you recognize the value there was to the organization? Was it that you got to a point where you're growing a company and you got to the point where you said, okay, wait, we need this? Or was there, hey, I, I don't understand IT. I just need someone to go take it off my hands, right? And so it very much has transformed the part where I'm significantly more, I don't want to say aggressive, but more direct about looking at culture and asking probing questions about how the organization deals with people and leadership and and where they fit in the organization. I want to take a second, actually, also before I forget and give a shout out to David Tybersky, uh, who's a friend of the show. He has been on one of the earliest shows that we did. You've got a relationship with him. We did some significant work there at the win. Tell us a little bit about that. David, I've known for for many many years, and he took a he took a big chance with me um, just before this job. Actually, I was uh, in a position where I had significantly more to give. The organization wasn't at a point where you know we could make changes at a pace and at a speed that I needed to move at. Right, I, I, I'm not someone who can sit still, and so. I had reached out to him and several other people in the community and said, Hey, I'm going to kind of look at the, at that point in time, I was a, I was a CISO. 
for an organization. I said, I understand. I want, I want to stay in Vegas. I understand that I may not, you know, get another C-level position right away, but I'm interested in moving into an environment I've never worked in before. And that was in the casino gaming space. And, and to David's credit, he, we had a relationship, professional relationship. And when I reached out to him, he's like, I have an idea. And if people know David, you know, one of the first things you say is, you'll hit him and say, oh shit. And then you're like, okay, I got to hear it. Uh, David is an incredibly talented individual that is just, this doesn't stop. And so we kind of went back and forth and he initially asked me if I wanted to come and run his sock. And I said, sure, that's fine. He gave me a number and I said, I'm not interested. Thank you very much. And we kind of did that, that little dance a couple of times back and forth. Um, but I knew what I was getting into with David and the other piece of it, it was another very good friend of mine who still works for David at when so i knew that culture going in right having lived in las vegas for many years you already kind of have the perception everyone knows when as an organization and what they stand for and then i knew from a leadership perspective already what i was getting into with that but i had never worked in a casino environment before and so you know that was definitely a, a risk that he took and i literally have an email open right now to to get some guidance from from David on some things that I worked on when I was there with him, and now some of the challenges I'm going to work on here. So it's interesting you bring that up. Well, it's it's awesome that it's a note that I made, and obviously we all kind of know one another, and and I didn't know that we knew one another, but that's that is an interesting thing from from a couple different levels. One, you know, I, I used to work for a guy that talked about your career, kind of. You, if you were plotting it on a graph, it's, it kind of has ups and downs. And and he talked about, you know, taking bigger roles and then falling back to smaller ones and then taking even larger ones. It's not all the same. It's not on the same path all the time, right? And so it was interesting that you went from being a CISO to running SOC and IAM, um, two areas that I very much enjoy uh, and have a lot of passion, especially around SOC. But then how that then boomerangs back into, uh, you know, a bigger job yet, right? And so that to me is interesting. But the important piece is, is that you guys are still staying in touch and you're still reaching out to him. I wasn't involved in all this, but in speaking with you, it, the path out was clean and, you know, you're still in contact and helping one another. So that's critically important. Oh, yeah. Those, those, those relationships, again, as you get further in your career, having those relationships are critical, right? I mean, no one knows at all, right? And so if you burn bridges, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face, right? My Rolodex that I rely on all the time is filled with individuals that I have met throughout my career. And, you know, even to this day, I have a very short list of people that if I ever had the opportunity, right, here's my dream team. And my, my wife and I have talked about it. You know, there's the, the top 10 list of individuals that we've either worked with or worked around over the course of our career. If we had an opportunity again to work with them, we would bring them on our team, right? Because they were that impactful in some aspect of, of your career, right? And so we all have individuals like that. And from a, a mentor and a, and a leadership perspective and a, a true experience perspective, David is one of those. Can you spend a moment, if you would, especially the way the conversation started, where you're talking about ego and not seeing different clues and kind of getting in your own way to 
you know, you joined David's team, you, you ran a significant piece of the program, and then you chose to leave gracefully. And, and you chose to leave and you did so gracefully. That's a better way to say it. But that may not have always been in your wheelhouse, it seems. How did you manage that? Knowing him going in certainly helps. But can you give those people listening some tips on, hey, they may be even be friends with their boss, but there's a great opportunity. And, and maybe they've even had the open conversation about, hey, the next step of your career may not be here and I'm going to support you. And all that goodness is there but they're still a little nervous about it. What are a couple things that you made sure that you did in order to ensure that success and managing emotions and career and all the rest of it well? I think the biggest one for me from a, you know, a challenge perspective was feeling like since I was not there very long and I, I literally was there about 15, 16 months uh, with David. I wasn't looking to leave, right? This opportunity just fell in my lap. But managing that that emotion of feeling like I've let someone down. You know, I, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation that he took a risk with me. I, I recognize that, that he's kind of stuck his neck out a little bit and said, hey, I want to bring someone in. I know that they, they can be successful, even if it doesn't look like on paper that they have the experience that we typically look for. And so it was really challenging for me with David I, I didn't hide anything from him in terms of when people came and, and talked to me about stuff. Um, so, you know, we had our one-on-ones. And, and so having that open line of communication where you're, again, having a leader that builds a safe space for you, where you can feel comfortable to be able to articulate, you know, kind of what you're looking for in your career. I think the other part of that is, you know, maturity a little bit. It's okay to have your own desires on where you want to go with your career and what you want to do. Uh, and it's okay to articulate that to, you know, your boss or what it may be. You have to walk a fine line between it coming across as threatening, right? Uh, I'm threatening to leave or trying to hold someone over a barrel. That's not the case, right? And so building that relationship before some interaction that could be emotionally charged happens is important and that you feel comfortable with that. But I think the piece for me then uh, really was sitting down with him and having a conversation face-to-face with him. And my mind was really challenged because there was individuals who had moved into Terrible's organization that had come from Win not too long ago. Uh, and it got, when they said something on the Terrible side about me coming over, I needed, it got back to Win really, really fast. And so I had wanted to wait. My boss, David, was traveling out of the country at the time. Uh, and I wanted to wait until he was back to be able to have a face-to-face conversation with him. Again, because one, I want a little bit of time to kind of deal with how I would communicate and get over my own feeling of letting him down. But also, I didn't want to do it in any other way other than face-to-face. It, it just, I, I, owe, I owed him that much significantly more. And I didn't have that opportunity, right? When it came up, it was going through the organization and I knew he would find out really quickly because it was already out. And so I ended up in a meeting with him while he was in Macau. Uh, so he was in China, outside China. And I ended up with a meeting with him. And right after that, I was like, look, I need you to stay on for a minute. I need to catch, you know, I need to catch up with a couple of things, right? Which is not, it was typical for us. Uh, when he was traveling, 
but then I had, you know, I had to tell him, but at least I had an opportunity to do it through a video call. Right. So yeah, yes, he wasn't right face to face, but he could see me and I could see him. And he was, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that he was uh, disappointed and probably somewhat frustrated again, because he had, you know, taken that leap, but he, he also recognized the opportunity for what it was. And I was able to articulate why, Hey, this is the reason why I need to take this opportunity, right? And I think if you build a relationship where you can have challenging conversations, that that's probably the most important piece of it. So that when that challenging conversation comes up, you're comfortable. But working, you know, taking a, a few minutes or whatever, and really just thinking through, okay, why are you interested in this? What is it that about this opportunity or in any any situation that would make you want to make a decision to go somewhere else, right? And being able to communicate that back to your supervisor or, you know, whoever it is that you're having that conversation with. A lot of times people, you know, try to hide. It's not right for them to, to have this conversation. And, and I think that it's not healthy if you don't, right? You, everybody has goals. And I tell people that work for me all the time, right? Hey, if you feel like you're in a position where you're ready to take the next step in your career and the organization doesn't have a role for you right now, I'll help you find that role somewhere else. Even if it's outside our organization, if you really feel like that's the next step for you, I'll help you with that piece of it. The organization doesn't have responsibility to you for your career. But as individuals, again, building that relationship and wanting to help people doesn't mean that you wouldn't help find someone. I've helped people write resumes that work for me to get a job in some other organization. And what you're, what you're doing is showing, again, that you are a leader. You're taking in their best interest as well and wanting to help them. And I have people that I've worked with that I know that if I had an opportunity that fit well for them, They've told me multiple times, hey, I'll come work for you in a heartbeat. And then I have plenty of people that will come back and say, there's no way I want to work for that guy again. He's an asshole. So, you know, you work through those pieces of it. But the, I, I guess back to your point uh, and your question, I think that you really have to cultivate that relationship before that incident happens. And then, you know, work through clearly articulating why you want to make that decision and not just, you know, and, and it could be for whatever reason, right? It, it could be that, hey, I got a 50% pay raise, or in my case, having an opportunity to, to build a, an organization, almost kind of rebuild it from the ground up is, you know, we talk about a sphere of influence, right? That That is something that's been where I wanted to go for a long time. And so it was a challenging conversation, but I'm very thankful to have uh, to have that relationship with David and and to be able to have him still be supportive. I mean, he literally told me at the end of the conversation, he said, I, I'm not going to even try to counter because I understand and recognize, you know, the opportunity that you have. And he wished me the best of luck. And, and that's not always the way those conversations go. And so, you know, I, I tip my hat to David as well for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you covered an immense amount there. We, this is ripped by time-wise I think, you know, one comment I will make is it probably was made even more difficult being the fact that it was 12 hours off too. well, 12 hours, 12 hours for me, another couple more for, you know, in that, in that equation. Uh, so you're dealing with someone's tired in that conversation as well, especially if they're, you know, uh, in Macau. So 
I can't thank you enough for being here. I got one more question for you, though, and those familiar with the show will know what I'm going to ask. Pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you, which is applicable since April 9th? I think to me what it means is you're not going to be successful in this role unless you understand your staff, really get to know them, uh, and and understand the challenges that they've had, and then work through the organization to, uh, you know, we talk about relationships, but you need to build those relationships within the business as well. Those, uh, one of the first things I did here was sit down with all the rest of the executive leadership and just ask them point blank. I asked them three questions. What's working? Don't change it. Don't break it. What's not working? Fix it. What are we not doing that we should be doing? Right. So pretty straightforward questions, but take a minute. Don't feel like you have to change everything right away. Take it all in and take a thoughtful approach to moving forward. Excellent advice. Brad, thank you so much for making time for us today. I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.